You are tuned to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Hawaii will begin vaccinating children under the age of five against COVID-19. The rollout could begin as soon as Thursday. The Food and Drug Administration cleared the emergency use on Friday. HPR's Sabrina Bowden joins us in the studio. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So today we're talking about cakey vaccines, and these are for children who are six months through four years old. And there are two different versions of the vaccine. We have one from Pfizer and one from Moderna. Both are mRNA vaccines, and they're smaller doses with smaller needles, and they're given to two to three shot uh, series. And these, you know, it's the same research that has gone into what adults are getting. And uh, Brooks Baer with the Department of Health says that all of the research points to them being as effective in children as they would be for adults. And, you know, it's all to reduce the severity of disease and to prevent it. You know, we've had hundreds of kids in Hawaii hospitalized from the effects of, of becoming infected with COVID-19. Uh, and, and, and others have, you know, visited emergency rooms or urgent care clinics uh, because they've, they've been hit with COVID-19. And a certain percentage of those children have also had to deal with long-haul COVID. You know, maybe it's just fatigue or a lingering cough or something, but those are things that, that we really can help prevent with these vaccines. You know, I know this is very stressful. I just know of a couple of families whose little ones under the age of, I think, one have come down with COVID, and so the parents are really worried. So to sort of like get away from that worry, the pediatric clinics, specifically with Hawaii uh, Pacific Health, they are going to have their clinic specially designed for children. And I was in their uh, office yesterday at Kapiolani Medical Center. They have baby shark posters. They're going to have pediatric nurses and pediatricians like in the room to just so you can ask them questions and you can really get uh, more information about what you need for your kid. The Department of Health has said that it's best to go through your pediatric clinics or your your regular pediatrician to ask more specific questions, but you can get the vaccines at pediatric offices or different pharmacies. And um, Brooks Bear has a little bit more information about where to find COVID vaccines. While we have a lot of pediatricians who will be offering the vaccine, not all these pediatricians will be listed on the vaccination map at hawaiicovid19.com. And that's because some of these offices will just be able to offer vaccine to their existing client base. They don't have the bandwidth to just open up to the general public and say, yeah, anyone who wants to get vaccinated, come to our office. So at Hawaii Pacific Health, they're going to be having clinics starting this weekend. Um, and they can, on Oahu, they can accommodate about 400 appointments per day um, this Saturday and Sunday. But Dr. Melinda Ashton, she has said that they're going to have more appointments uh, if there's more interest involved. Do we know when those vaccines actually touched ground? I mean, tomorrow? <laughs> yes, know? well, they started coming in Monday, Tuesday, and the rest of them are supposed to come in on Wednesday. So that's wow. 27,500 vaccines for the state. So far, that, and that's just through the state, there's pediatric clinics and pharmacies have also been putting in their own orders. Wow, so already on island, and so if parents want to get their young children vaccinated and they should definitely call their doctors right away and schedule an appointment. Yeah, you can call your doctor's offices. You can look at different pharmacies. But Brooks was saying that uh, the Department of Health's website, hawaiicovid19.com, will have a interactive map that you can sort of scroll in. You can zoom in exactly to where you are on the different islands and it's completely accessible to you. I know with the regular vaccines, you know, many clinics were uh, offering, uh, you know, only a certain type of vaccine on a certain day. Uh, I don't know. Did they talk about that at the news conference? How's that, how's that going to work for the little Kiki? Absolutely. So at HPH, Dr. Melinda Ashton was saying that at their clinics, they are only going to be having the Pfizer vaccine. And that's to reduce the risk of any complications or giving a child the wrong shot. So I'm not sure about the different clinics around the islands, but I do know at HPH they are only going to be having Pfizer. Okay. All right. Well, that's uh, good to know. And again, families should uh, uh, contact their doctor's offices if they have any questions. Thanks so much, Sabrina. Thank you, Catherine. That was HPR's Sabrina Bowden talking to us this morning about the official rollout of the COVID vaccines for young children, children under five. Look for more on the story at hawaiipublicradio.org. 
You're listening to The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. In today's Backyard Quiz, we're thinking about a woman who put women's athletics on the map in Hawaii. She was born in Chicago in 1933, graduated from high school at 16, and excelled as a collegiate athlete. After earning a doctorate in physical education administration from Northern Colorado, she moved to Hawaii in 1961 to start a women's track and field program at the University of Hawaii. She eventually went on to serve as superintendent of Hawaii's public schools. Now, while at UH, you know, there was no budget and little recognition for women's sports, but she would help change all that. She worked with Hawaii U.S. Representative Patsy Mink on Title IX, the Women's Equity uh, Educational Equity Act, which opened the door for the growth of women's athletics in America. She's also the one who gave the UH women's volleyball team its name, the Rainbow Wahine. For today's Backyard Quiz, we want to know her name. Call 808-941-3689, or from the neighbor islands, call 888-77-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to providing workforce housing for growing families, such as the Kauai Housing Development Corporation. NairitHawaii.com. Honolulu Civil Beat editor Chad Blair joins us this morning. Our reality check has to do with the plans to defuel the Navy's Red Hill underground fuel storage facility. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So this is a story by Christina Jedra. Right. She's our, our key person and has written so many terrific articles uh, really exposing what has been going on there at Red Hill. I'm covering for her today and um, what this comes from is a town hall that was held last night at, uh, I believe, at Moanalua High School, which is fitting because that is in the Red Hill area here on Oahu. And the question she poses is, is, is Red Hill being drained quick enough? And the answer is, well, uh, don't hold your breath just yet. It's probably going to take longer than expected, maybe until fall of 2024, which, boy, seems like a long ways away. This town hall, by the way, was uh, featured Kai Kahele, uh and Ed Case, our, our two members in the House of Representatives. Uh, Ernie Lau from the Board of Water Supply was there as well. Yes, and uh, both uh, those uh, lawmakers are... Um are facing um, election races this weekend. You know, Kai's running for governor, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and uh, yeah. and Representative Case is uh, trying to hang on to his seat. Yeah, I'm sure it's just coincidence the timing of the of the town hall. But you know, this seriously, this is something that has has been a major major concern, and and the delegation has been much more proactive. I, I think you have to give credit to Kahele for first speaking out pretty strongly and uh, but as Ed Case and Maisie Hirono and Brian Schatz have said they've always felt strongly about the issue they just haven't been as well let's just put it this way Kai Kaheli really put this on the map and uh, bottom line the Navy is under a state order to defuel this facility which was leaking contaminated into the drinking water leaking uh, fuel last year this is 100 million gallons of fuel that is uh, stored above 100 feet above Oahu's main aquifer. Yes, and, and there has been money uh, earmarked uh, for the defueling process. Some worried that it's not enough. You know, we did see that lawsuit. Um, uh, you know, earlier this month um, by the um, Alliance, the environmental group, 
you know, just wanting to make sure that uh, enough money is uh, being put aside to help with the defueling and to, you know, clean up our water. Right. You know, Ed Kay said last night that he initially thought it was going to be three to six months in Kahele upon learning about the this would essentially be two years more from now, right? Um, that this is problematic. Uh, the military, for its part, part, part says that it it needs to ensure that another leak does not happen in the course uh, of this defueling process. And and you are right about that appropriation. It's I believe it's in the twenty twenty three fiscal year National Defense Authorization Authorization Act. I don't know if it's been approved. Uh, Joe Biden recently has mentioned one billion dollars which would go to a number of things, including maybe addressing some of the the concerns that, that victims who have feel like they've essentially been poisoned, certainly been contaminated uh, by the drinking water. We'll see whether that goes through. Even last night, even though the Navy was saying, look, the tap water is safe. You don't have to worry. We haven't extensively flushed the system there. Uh, Sam, some families on hand last night said they're, they still feel there's contaminated water, and they're actually spending their own money uh, for drinking water. Well, you know, Ernie Lau has said, you know, it, it's important that we're cautious because we don't want, mm-hmm. you know, more contamination to happen if there, there was to be another uh, accident and another rupture. Uh, and, and, and it's true. We don't want any more of our drinking water contaminated. Right. He did actually use the word nightmare. We could have a nightmare scenario if for some reason there was another leak in these aging pipelines. Remember, this facility dates back to... Uh, I believe before World War II, certainly 70, 80 years now, the Navy does have to also turn in a plan by this November on how they're going to go about doing this. But, you know, there are some other mixed signals. Uh, Secretary of Defense himself, Lloyd Austin, has said that it, it may take more than 12 months to remove that petroleum. That surprised a lot of people, including some environmentalists and community activists that were there that said, look, I thought I thought the Navy said it would only take 36 hours to to drain one of these tanks. And one of those folks said last night, we can't wait two years. That's just too long. Yeah, I mean, there are 20 tanks. Not all of them are full. Uh, and you just wonder, you know, where that rupture is in the pipeline. Uh, that You know, did it blow out the whole system? Or can they start to defuel, you know, some of the, the lower tanks? So lots right, we don't know right. about. It- there is. And remember, we're also looking at a very dry season. We are actually, if not already, in a drought condition, certainly in some of the the islands. And it was Ernie Lau not long ago that was warning people to conserve water. And so this issue with Red Hill uh, uh, is going to continue to be with us, certainly for another two years, based on this later latest projection. All right. Well, we'll just keep our fingers crossed and hope that they can um, fuel it, uh, defuel it, and uh, defuel it safely. But thanks so much. Thanks, Kath. Sure. That was Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. You can read Christina Jedra's story at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with the evening event Palette on August 27th, a museum-wide celebration of food, drink, and art featuring local restaurants, bars, and entertainment. Tickets at honolulumuseum.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Judith Valente, author of How to Be. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about my spiritual conversations with Brother Paul Quinnen. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Scientists from the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change say global emissions must peak in the next three years if we want to avoid the most dire consequences of climate change. But don't mistake that goal for the finish line. By 2030, the group says we must also cut carbon emissions by over 30, over 40 percent. 
Just how far do we have to go? Well, Hawaii is pouring over 20 million metric tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere about every year, according to data from the U.S. Energy Information Administration. The conversation Savannah Harriman Pote spoke with Melissa Miyashiro, executive director of the Blue Planet Foundation, to get a better picture of our carbon emissions and what we need to do to cut back. How does Hawaii compare to, for instance, other states across the U.S.? Do we have a per capita understanding of how much every individual, for instance, could be responsible for carbon emissions? We are a small state, but what are we actually emitting? If you're looking at per person in Hawaii, each person annually is responsible for about 15 metric tons of carbon emissions. And that can vary based on the data set that you're looking at. When you compare that to other states across the country, there's also variation based on the industries that they have in that state, um, but, but it's about the same or comparable. What really is a contrast is when you compare that carbon emissions number to the average global citizen. So looking globally, the average citizen only contributes about four to five metric tons. So it, as Americans, we are emitting at least three times as much as the average global citizen. So it really shows that we have an outsized uh, contribution to global climate emissions. And the largest source of emissions is actually from transportation. So that accounts for about 9 million metric tons. The second largest is the stationary uh, combustion sources, the fossil fuel power plants that are, that are also contributing. Within transportation, uh, you have ground transportation and then also aviation. And what's really interesting about the aviation number uh, is that it doesn't give the full picture. So what's counted in our greenhouse gas inventory is really only uh, domestic aviation. So that is in looking at inner island travel. So, um, you know, between islands, air travel there, and it's also factoring in flights that originate in Hawaii and then fly domestically. So a flight from Honolulu to Los Angeles, as an example. But what we're not including um, in our calculation um, is the, the flights you know, coming to Hawaii and then also internationally. We're not factoring that into our calculation um, in our greenhouse gas inventory. So just to clarify, for instance, if I'm going to go visit family in San Diego, when I get on that plane and that plane leaves from Hawaii, that flight is calculated. But a flight that originates in San Diego, I had a great visit, I'm coming home, that flight would not be calculated here in our emissions. That's correct. We're only calculating in our inventory the emissions for flying out of Hawaii, so not anything that's coming in. Uh, and then that's only domestic, too. So there's an estimate um, in the way that we, we calculate the greenhouse gas inventory for uh, international flights that originate in Hawaii, but that number is actually subtracted out of, of our overall total when we're looking at the total number uh, for carbon emissions. And there too, that, that's only thinking about flights that are originating in Hawaii. We're not looking at the round trip travel, it's only one-way travel. What is the motivation to exclude those numbers from our calculations? Are we assuming, assuming that they're getting calculated elsewhere? That's right. So this is all driven by guidelines that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has set forth. What they're really trying to do is to calculate emissions globally. So this is a way of kind of, you know, matching up things globally so that we're really taking inventory of the full picture. But the challenge with that is that it, it's not really providing uh, the transparency that we need locally to really understand how we are contributing to that global picture. We know that in Hawaii, so much of our economic activity is driven by the tourism sector, but we're not really taking a hard and honest look at how that sector is contributing to global emissions for climate change. So if we're only looking at travel one way and we're also devoting state um, you know, resources and, and, and money to encouraging more people to travel to our islands, that has an impact on on the bigger picture, on the global uh, carbon emissions. And, and we're not really having those conversations. We're not really taking an honest, transparent look at how can we be part of reining in emissions globally from air travel and from the visitor sector more broadly. 
We've talked about a visitor cap as a sustainability initiative in terms of protecting ecosystems. We've also talked about it in terms of just residents' quality of life. Do you know if there's discussion about setting a cap on visitors as a climate change initiative in order to ensure that we are not emitting an abundance of carbon through air travel? Feels like the conversation around climate in the tourism sector, um, you know, we haven't quite connected the dots there. We were really in an interesting moment, you know, during the pandemic. I think local residents really got a sense of actually how many visitors were coming to the island on a regular basis. And we were able to, to really feel that when they, when they stopped coming. Um, and of course, there were economic implications of that because our economy is so heavily dependent on tourism. But uh, local residents could, could really feel, wow, there, there are a lot of visitors <laughs> coming to our island on a, a daily basis. And, you know, we didn't kind of have that perspective about how many were here until they, they weren't here. And it was a, an interesting moment and conversations were coming up about not wanting to go back to the way things were before and that it felt unsustainable. It feels like maybe we missed an opportunity there to, to really do something proactive about that. I think the conversation's gonna you know, come up again um, as it does this kind of cycle of um, invulnerability of being dependent on tourism as our primary economic driver. So the conversation's gonna continue to, to come up and as climate change worsens, you know, we're, we're gonna have to, to have some tough conversations about what the, the future of that sector looks like. And it, we're hopeful that the um, and, and see some glimpses of the industry, you know, wanting to be part of the solution. So the, the more that they can be part of the conversations that we have on dramatically reducing emissions in the way that we've been talking about at the, the pace and scale that's really unprecedented in human history. You know, we, we need all of the sectors to be on board with that plan. Do you think that it's reasonable to say that as long as we are dependent on tourism in Hawaii, we will de- be dependent upon oil? Certainly, because right now, fossil-based jet fuel is how we power planes. So conversations about sustainable aviation fuels are really exciting, and we need to, uh, you know, to be looking closer at that and accelerating that. But, you know, as of right now, that's really, you know, fossil-powered. And then also ground transportation. We have a long way to go in Hawaii to decarbonizing our ground transportation sector. We're a very car-dependent state, a lot of driving and, and a lot of traffic. Many of our communities aren't built to be pedestrian uh, or bike friendly. So these are things that we need to, to look at when we're looking at you know, our, our land use planning and our community and city planning efforts. It's all part of this puzzle. Um, and each of these pieces can help and are needed. We need to tackle this challenge from multiple angles. There's not just like one silver bullet solution. It's gonna take work across sectors, each one decarbonizing. That was Melissa Miyashiro, Executive Director of the Blue Planet Foundation, and the conversation Savannah Harriman Pote. They were talking about how our carbon emissions are calculated and how we adapt our jet fuel economy. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Beach House Restaurant on Kauai. Now hiring multiple front and back of house positions. Application by searching the Beach House Kauai. On the next fresh air, how lonely, exhausting, and bankrupting parenting can be. Yet nannies, daycare workers, and preschool teachers are typically underpaid. We'll talk with Angela Garbus, who says it shouldn't have to be that way. Her new book is called Essential Labor, Mothering as Social Change. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point.
Now, there are events planned this week, both here in the islands and our nation's capital, to mark the 50th anniversary of the passage of Title IX, the Equality in Education Act. It's named after the author, the late Patsy Takimoto Mink. Her political career began in 1956 when she was elected to the Hawaii House of Representatives. The Maui Trailblazer accomplished many firsts. She was the first Japanese-American woman to practice law in Hawaii, and in 1964, she became the first Asian-American and woman of color elected to serve in the U.S. Congress. The Conversations Lillian Song sat down with award-winning filmmaker Kimberly Bassford, the director of the documentary Patsy Mink, Ahead of the Majority. So in 2002, when Patsy Mink passed away in September of that year, I was a graduate student at the University of California, Berkeley, studying journalism. And I just remember seeing a lot of the headlines, the stories that were coming out of the news about Patsy Mink's death. And it struck me that she was the very first woman of color to serve in the U.S. Congress. I think that's the first thing that made me stop and read the story. And then when I read more, you know, the fact that she had run for president of the United States. And then, of course, that she was the co-author of Title IX, which is something I knew about at the time. I was a graduate student myself, and I consider myself a beneficiary of Title IX. So all these things, you know, those three things in particular, really struck me as someone from Hawaii that, wow, why didn't I know this about her? I knew her name growing up. I knew she was a longtime politician, congresswoman for our state, but I did not know these things about her, and that just piqued my curiosity. So that's where my interest began, and it really wasn't until about two years later after I had moved home back to Hawaii after being on the U.S. continent for a while that I was trying to figure out what my first film project was going to be as an independent filmmaker. Her story just kept coming to mind. How was it like doing the research? What was out there for you as far as resources about Patsy Mink, who really was a trailblazer? Yes, yes. So when I first started doing research on Patsy Mink, this was in 2004, I had just moved home. I really just tried to find anything I could about her. So of course, I started online. Quickly, I found a mini biography that had been written about her that was published by the University of Hawaii Law School. I read that, and so that was a really great source of information. As I did more research, I found out there was a dissertation that a PhD student had written back in the 70s about Patsy Mink, so I got that from the UH Library. So I really found just like kind of bits and pieces. There had also been a young adult nonfiction book that had been written about Patsy Mink too. So I started there, and when I felt like I had enough background information, I decided to reach out to Patsy Mink's daughter, Gwendolyn Mink. Just sent her an email, you know, about who I was, and I was really interested in her mother's story, and, you know, might it be possible to connect with her sometime? It just so happened she was on the island. Quickly she responded and she was with her dad and so they invited me over to their house and we just kind of started talking story. And that's sort of where the project really began. So you're getting then access firsthand. Yes, yeah. So the project took about four years to make the film, but really the first two years I was doing research and fundraising. And I went over on a couple of occasions to the Mink home John Mink was alive at the time, and he would share boxes. They had file boxes of still of Patsy's papers. I think they were maybe about to send them over to the Library of Congress. But in any case, they still had a lot of material. And so he would share those with me. And while I'd be looking through the boxes, he would share stories. So yes, it was very much like just trying to learn more about her through them. So they were very instrumental in the beginning. And then, of course, they would help connect me to other folks, like, you know, people who worked for Patsy Mink, you know, and then let me know, like, who she was close with in Congress and things like that. So definitely kind of grew from there. For you, being able to hang out with her husband and her daughter and just really seeing a lot of her personal effects, her papers Mm -hmm. and all that, was there anything in that collection that you still remember today that really stood out to you that, you know, I mean, you had access to all this material that Mm -hmm. we can only imagine. It's so hard to remember, like, thinking back to them because I also did research at the Library of Congress, which some of those materials, I think, might have been the same material, so it's hard to pinpoint when I saw things. But I was always really just interested in anything personal, you know, photographs or the pre-elected official, like, just of her in college or graduate school. And then also letters that she would write to constituents, just letters she wrote, you know, to advocate for things. 
She was involved when she was at the University of Nebraska in a letter writing campaign to protest the segregated housing policy they had. So things like that stuck with me the most. So you really got to see her point of view. And how were things aggregated? You're going through just boxes? Just boxes. There must have been some kind of organizational scheme, but they were really just boxes. Like the family was just going through the materials and I think sending them over to the Library of Congress. So now if researchers go, they can go to the Library of Congress and research in the Patsy to make papers, and I'm sure there's a finding aid, and it's it's organized. But when I was doing the film project, they were still in a fairly unprocessed state. Thinking about Patsy Mink's story, I think I just appreciated, you know, the fact that Patsy Mink was one of those pioneers who really blazed the trail for the rest of us, but also, you know, spent time and energy changing things so that people like me wouldn't face those barriers. That's sort of why I say I was a beneficiary because I didn't have to struggle the way she did. If I applied to journalism school, there like a thought did not cross my mind that, oh, maybe I won't get in because I'm a woman. Like that was not even a possibility in my mind. And so the fact that like that was my reality, I just felt a really big debt of gratitude toward mm-hmm. Patsy Mink for co-authoring Title IX and making it easier for girls and women to pursue higher education. And then it's really interesting to see how Title IX has evolved since then, right? Like the original intent was always to just make sure people weren't being prevented from pursuing their education because of their their gender. But now, you know, it's not just about admissions and financial aid, it's about sports, it's about pregnant students being able to continue their education, it's about sexual misconduct on college campuses. So it's really sort of evolved, but the spirit and essence of Title IX remains the same. Hmm. Right. For you in your class at Berkeley, how was the breakdown? Gender ratio? I actually think there were more women than men. For sure, especially in my documentary class the second year. So let's say there were like 14 of us. I would say there was only like four, four guys around then. So it was predominantly women. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I think in documentary filmmaking, because in film in general, it's definitely women are underrepresented in terms of, you know, the storytellers, the people behind the cameras. But in the documentary field, there's more parity. I I don't know if it's exactly 50-50, but you see a lot more women Mm -hmm. in the field. Very interesting. And I did hear also just that how Patsy Mink herself, she never let any doors that were closed to her just stop her. The fact that she was like, can't be a doctor because you can't apply to medical school because you're a woman. So she's like, okay, I'll become a lawyer. Mm-hmm. I mean, she just she just had this ethos. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, and, and also once she was able to achieve what she wanted, she kind of kept the door open for others, right? So that's the other thing that I think was really admirable about her. For instance, writing Title IX and I mean, other pieces of legislation. Like with Title IX, there's also something called the Women's Educational Equity Act that was passed sort of I think a little bit later, but they kind of go hand in hand. So Title IX is just a mandate that says that educational institutions receiving federal funds cannot discriminate based on gender or sex, whereas Women's Educational Equity Act was really trying to support programs that were trying to change curricula in schools that were not gender supportive or they weren't gender neutral. So like the fact that like when Patsy Mink and even others, even today still, if you look at some books, you know, that like women are only depicted as homemakers or teachers or nurses and these very limited roles. The WIA, Women's Educational Equity Act, was about funding resources so that we would develop curricula with women in more interesting roles so that girls growing up could imagine a different possibility for themselves. So it's about changing the culture and changing people's minds versus like Title IX is just a mandate, like you can't discriminate. So they, to me, they go hand in hand. And so she was behind WIA as well. Mm-hmm. So for you, as you were talking about putting together your project, though, having to look for that footage, you know, because you, you could see the papers the Mink family gave you access to. But then the next step, you had to then go look for footage. And some of the most interesting things that I saw were some vintage shots of her just hanging out, just talking story with students, Mm -hmm. being very accessible. Yes. Where was that footage from? There was some from a campaign video she did. So I think the one you might be talking about is in 1976, she gave up her House seat and ran for US Senate. And this was against Spark Matsunaga. 
but I found the old campaign videos they had done, and this was all shot on film. So I'm so glad I was able to find them and that whoever did it preserved it. And so it was like kind of, I think they were just following her on all these sort of like talk story sessions with different communities. So they had one with like her and I think um, people involved in labor unions and they had one with her and women. And so so um, it was great. So that was a really great resource. But yeah, we really had to look all around. You know, we've obviously started looking for footage of her in Hawaii, but a lot of the news stations didn't have of footage going that far back, I guess, in the transition from film to video. A lot of them had either tossed it or I don't know what happened to the film footage. So it was hard to find anything from Patsy's first tenure in Congress from like 1964 to 1976. I really didn't find much. And the things you do see in the film are from national sources. So like NBC News archives and There were some things out in Oregon from her presidential run, from like the Oregon Historical Society. The news stations did have things of her from, you know, the 80s and on, but that was later on. So I was really trying to find some of the earlier material and it was very challenging. Hmm. Having access to resources is wonderful. So for you, knowing where to go when you're telling your stories. We all benefit from the experience of people going before us. Oh, yes, yes. It's fun because, you know, I relied, like I said, there wasn't as much out there, but I relied on that mini biography and that dissertation and, you know, whatever I could find. And then then I did the film and now people are coming to me as now the film is a resource. Hopefully there's much more out there, too, than even what I found. It's fun. There have been a few other projects on her since my film. And one of the more recent ones in terms of a video or film, she was featured in the PBS series Asian Americans. So for those who are interested more in her story or just how she fits within the larger story of Asian America, I watched it and I actually had been in touch with the producers because they were asking me like where I found my archival, but they found some things I hadn't used. So, you know, I think there's more out there. Yeah. So hopefully we'll find more things of Patsy mm-hmm. Mink in the future. You're right. It's just kind of cool. Like when I did this film 14 years ago, of course, I was just trying to get the film done, but um, I don't think I imagined the 50th anniversary, like it seems so far off in the future. And it's really great that people are still discovering her story today. And, and also just the importance of the work that she did, and particularly Title IX. That was filmmaker Kimberly Bassford uh, talking about Patsy Mink, the focus of her 2008 documentary, Ahead of the Majority. Mink will be honored Thursday morning in Washington, D.C. with an unveiling of her portrait. There will also be a lay draping ceremony uh, at Mink statue in front of the State Library here on Oahu. This week, we've been exploring the history of Title IX in light of the 50th anniversary. And for today's Backyard Quiz, we're focusing on a pioneer in women's collegiate athletics, not only in Hawaii, but for the nation. Uh, As the first women's athletics director at UH, she worked with Congresswoman Patsy Mink on Title IX legislation, the law that gave parity to women's sports teams. She first came to Hawaii to start a women's track and field program for UH. She had almost no budget to work with, but during her nine-year tenure, she was able to create an enthusiastic statewide audience for her school's teams. In 1976, the UH versus UCLA women's volleyball match at Clum Gym became the first time a school uh, charged admission for a women's sporting event. The game was a sellout, and fans watched UH win in a thrilling come-from-behind victory. The Rainbow Wahine went on to become a national powerhouse. After leaving UH, she became Hawaii school superintendent, and she was inducted into the UH Sports Circle of Honor in 1988 and the Hawaii Sports Hall of Honor in 2007 and a sculpture of her resides at the Stan Sheriff Center, a reminder of the contributions of Donis Thompson, the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. And congrats to Mike from Kaimuki. You got it right. Uh, if you have an idea for a, a Backyard Quiz, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org.
Support for HPR comes from Blue Note Hawaii, located in the outrigger Waikiki. Hawaiian singer-songwriter John Cruz celebrates the 25th anniversary of his album Acoustic Soul, June 25th and 26th. BlueNoteHawaii.com Next time on The World, a video game developer in China made one of the most profitable games ever, even while navigating strict censorship laws. It's not just found success in China, but it's found success globally. The scale it's been able to achieve is unlike any other game. How Genshin Impact balances commercial success with Communist Party ideology. It's on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hawaiian Airlines, connecting the local community with more than 120 flights daily between the islands. Schedules and reservations at hawaiianairlines.com. You know, when someone sets out to pen their first novel, it's probably understood that it will be a lengthy process of writing, edits, rejections, and then more edits before it's published. But what about the second or third book? Does it get any easier? Well, Tyler McMahon is an uh, English professor at Hawaii Pacific University. His fourth novel, One Potato, was released earlier this year. He sat down with the conversations of Russell Subiano to talk about the book and what the process is like the fourth time around. Does writing them get any easier? Not necessarily. I, everyone's been a little bit different. Like, I, I think the process with this one was I sort of learned what not to do a little bit, but it doesn't get any shorter. That's for sure. It doesn't take any less time. I'd say my radar for knowing when they're on the right track and when they're, you know, close to being finished is maybe a little bit more highly developed than it was on my first book. But overall, I would say it's about the same level of difficulty. Your book is titled One Potato. It starts out with the main character, Eddie Morales, a researcher at a biotech firm, trying to develop a vending machine that dispenses freshly cooked French fries, which I think is an awesome idea. <laughs> Can you share with our listeners where the story goes from there? Well, Eddie, his sort of wheelhouse are those processed vending machine French fries, which my biggest fear while speaking of the publishing process and waiting for the book to come out, I was sure that they were going to invent those and that they would already be a part of our lives by then. And I'm still kind of surprised that they're not. <laughs> but uh, he gets called into the office of the big boss at his biotech company, someplace he's never been before, and sort of gets debriefed on a very odd situation in a small fictional South American country where this biotech firm grows their potatoes. And this all comes as a shock to Eddie because he's not an expert on international relations or public relations or any of these types of things. But lo and behold, he ends up getting sent away from his comfortable lab down to South America to sort of put out this ensuing media circus. And he's never really quite sure why they chose him for most of the book. For me, as someone who grew up in Hawaii, my first thought when I saw the cover of the book was, would this story also work if we substitute it with rice? Do you think that might work? <laughs> you know, it's funny, Russell, because kind of the way I thought about this whole book was I was thinking about companies like Monsanto and what they've done with corn, you know, turn it into everything, basically make it so that we're basically eating corn or drinking corn 99% of the time, whether we realize it or not. And I sort of had this idea for something related to GMOs and biotech. And I, corn is a little, I don't know, I couldn't get my head around it. But then I, when I was thinking about potatoes, it just sort of was visually a little bit more interesting to me. And so in some ways, the conceit of the book is that what if, uh, you know, they were doing to potatoes what they've do, been doing to corn for so long. And perhaps they could with rice as well. <laughs> Maybe that'll be yeah. cool. <laughs> right. Um. I've seen in some places where your book has been reviewed or, or where it's been summarized that it's been described as a satire. Does the potato represent something? Should readers be kind of looking beyond the potato to maybe a bigger issue? Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways it's enigmatic of how we balance nature and science. Here we have this thing that doesn't look like it was made in a lab or anything like that, but increasingly it is a product of research and chemicals and, and so on and so forth. So I hope that in the 
this particular potato, we have kind of a little bit of a microcosm of just the, the balancing act that we do when we alter the natural world. And I like to think that the book is not sort of hyperbolic one way or the other. I mean, I was really trying, I, I think it's a complicated balancing act. And I think this kind of technology for altering how we grow food and how we produce it and how we consume it is magical. And it's probably going to be necessary. Well, it's certainly going to be necessary to feed the kind of population that we have on earth and in a place like Hawaii that's remote and things like that. But it also, you know, with all that power comes a lot of responsibility and we have to wield that kind of magic with a certain amount of kuleana, you know, the same way we would with antibiotics or nuclear power, a sort of balance has to be struck there. And it seems to me when we talk about food, we're very extreme. We either are like, well, I'm never going to eat this. I'm only going to eat things that are produced this way, or I don't care. I'll eat all of this. It's delicious. You know, that sort of thing. And that was kind of got what got me interested in the book is I felt like people were passionate about these issues in very kind of extreme ways and, and that they were representative of a whole host of other things. I know that a writer's past experiences tend to find their way into books that they write. A good portion of One Potato takes place in that fictional country of Puerto Malagrado. I know you've traveled around the world. I know you were in Portugal fairly recently. I'm going to read off a few descriptions of Puerto Malagrado. You tell me if you base that on a real travel experience or if it's completely made up. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay, here's the first one. The next morning, an odd combination of roosters and car alarms harassed me out of a deep sleep. Next, a neighbor blasted techno music on a stereo, inexplicably moving the volume up and down. Is that real or made <laughs> That is definitely real. I would say it's a little bit of an amalgamation. My auntie lives in the Canary Islands, and I remember being there in Tenerife where she lives when I was very young. And that was one of the things that struck me just as surreal is this kind of combination of the old world and the new world in the morning, the roosters and also the car alarm kind of going off at the same time. A lot of kids stumbling home at daybreak and things like that. And then the volume thing, you know, I was in El Salvador for several years. I was in the Peace Corps there and I was in my 20s or so. And I don't know what the deal was, but people just love jacking with the volume on their stereos all the time. And it, it used to just drive me crazy. Like you'd be on a bus or something and somebody would be moving it up and down. And all right. How about this one? We drove past an alpine lake with impossibly blue water and then later past another with a hue-like rust. Real or made up? That's real. That actually is something I always struck me in, uh, in South America, not so much on bus rides, but on plane flights particularly flying from Lima to Cusco, you would just see all these lakes and you're sort of going over like the continental divide, I suppose it is. The land is going straight up and then coming down to the Amazon. So it's this kind of arid, you know, thing going to a, the luscious place on earth. And you'd see all these lakes, you know, they were almost inaccessible, but they had these crazy different colors. And I assume they were all from the minerals and whatnot that was up there. Okay, here's the last one. In the front yard, a baby llama sniffed at his mother's butt. A small goat stretched to the end of his tether. Two dogs perked up their heads as if to consider barking or attacking, but then lay back down. Is that real <laughs> or made up? I think that's made up. I've seen all those animals <laughs> in, in different, different settings, but I don't think they were all ever in any one person's yard. <laughs> You've lived in Hawaii for over a decade. I believe all your novels have been published in your time that you've been here in the islands. How much has life here filtered down into your writing style or your characters or the stories that you want to tell? You know, I hadn't thought of the fact that every book I've ever published, I was already living here. I think about this all the time, Russell. I mean, I, you know, I have lived here pretty much longer than anywhere, you know, since childhood. It's a place that I just find so enigmatic and complicated and difficult to kind of get your head around in a lot of ways. I mean, I've written more about El Salvador where I was for three years. I've been here now for maybe 13 years. So it has affected me a lot, particularly just thinking about, I, you know, when I was writing more about El Salvador, for example, because it's a place that just really captivated my imagination when I was kind of developing as a writer, I just wanted people to know about it. I felt like as Americans, it was sort of this little secret, you know, it was almost like a secret room inside of our house, Central America, where we had done all these things a few generations ago, where we were 
sort of quietly getting our labor force back then to pick our food and clean our homes and take care of our kids and all this stuff. And we would, you know, nobody could even find it on a map. So I was just like, you know, wanted to just be shouting from the rooftops, hey, you guys got to know about this place. But in the case of Hawaii, what really strikes me now, having lived here for a while, is that it's a place that's kind of the opposite, where like the mythology of it has really been trafficked in a lot by people from elsewhere, you know, storytellers, corporations, filmmakers, all of these things. So it seems doubly complicated in a way to sort of pretend to know anything about it, you know, because a lot of other folks have come and sort of spoken first and maybe not thought their way through it. But I feel like this book, One Potato, which doesn't have anything to do with Hawaii at all in its face, I don't think I ever could have written this without having lived here. I just think how you manage your food system and how you balance the productivity with the needs of a growing population, all of these things, they just would have seemed very abstract to me if I never left the continent. And here they seem a little bit more direct, like they seem like a, a really pressing issue and the consequences are only gonna be, you know, so many miles away from you. And so, yeah, I, I think in a roundabout way, it's, it's really influenced me a lot. That was HPU English professor and author Tyler McMahon talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. Uh, McMahon's fourth novel, One Potato, is out now. wraps it up for us today. Are you looking for a job or looking to change careers? Tomorrow we talk to the state about a new job search tool and we get advice from a career coach. You got a Title IX story to share? Why don't you call the Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. <laughs>